What if I told you you could have a tax filing expert be your co-pilot for free? Sounds good, right? When you file with Tax Act, you'll get expert assistance from a real person, and it's free with all returns. They'll answer your questions and even help you with a quick review before you file. But a good thing doesn't last forever. You must file by April 7th to take advantage of this incredible offer. So hurry to taxact.com where you file for less and get more. Restrictions apply. See taxact.com for details. You're raised as an athlete to fight back. So why all of a sudden, when you retire, do you stop the good fight? This is Finding Center with Nick Hardwick. Hey, all it's Nick. So if you follow my stories on Instagram, I'm at Nick Hardwick, then you already know I'm very routine. I'm super regimented. I post almost every meal that I eat to show that health and maintaining a fit and active body and lifestyle, it's not a trick. It's consistently making good choices on a daily basis of what you put into your body and what you do with that body. One thing I put into my body since the company was founded in 2017 is Bub's Naturals Collagen Protein and their MCT Oil Powder. Fantastic product. One way or another, I've used Bub's regularly since 2017 daily. Most mornings during the work week, I'm up and at them super early, having my pre-workout shake at about 4.30. I count my macronutrients and am very specific about what I put in and at what times. That meal has allotted 5 grams of fat, 40 grams of protein, 45 grams of carbs. I know. It's very technical. Part of my drink, the tasty part anyway, is Bub's MCT oil powder. Adds such a nice creaminess, balances out, and slows down the digestion of the protein and the carbs. I've sustained energy at the gym at 5 a.m. On the weekends, or really when I want to treat myself, I either have a Bub's Protein Latte or a Matcha Green Tea Protein Latte. Super good. Add 20 grams of collagen protein, which I find very gentle on the stomach, and a little dose of that MCT oil powder. Whip it up with the magic wand that they have, and voila, it's a decadent treat. A couple of really good things about Bub's. No other collagen brand can claim to be 100% NSF certified, which is the official seal of approval for most all professional sports, not that you're a professional athlete, but you know that you're getting what is claimed on the package with that certification, and that is huge. And they stand behind their products with a 100% guarantee. You're going to love it, so that's not going to matter, but it's good for your peace of mind. And here's something else I love about the company. They always donate 10% of profits to charity. That's awesome. And if you happen to be in the San Diego area, Bub's products are now available at all Barron's Markets. Stop in, pick some up today, and see how conveniently health can fit into your lifestyle. And if you don't have a Barron's near you or don't want to go to the store, order it online at bubsnaturals.com. You can also check out their blog for creative recipes like my matcha green tea latte at bubsnaturals.com. Use the code, here it is, HARDWICK15 for 15% off your order. Hey guys, welcome back to the Finding Center podcast. Got a very special guest today. His name is Dr. David Hazy, MD. He's a very curious physician, as I'm sure he'll tell us. He's a Vanderbilt and Mayo Clinic trained, double board certified physician who founded the Maxwell Clinic in Nashville, Tennessee. There he and his remarkable team, they bring fresh hope and tangible results to patients suffering from hard to treat brain health challenges, including dementia, head injury, fatigue, depression, and anxiety. 
In his book, Curiosity Heals the Human, check that one out. He describes how growing up on a South Dakota farm helped to shape his unique perspectives on the human body as an awesomely interconnected self-healing system. He's a pioneer, sought-after international lecturer in the fields of integrative and functional medicine and is now a nationally, internationally recognized authority in the emerging field of regenerative apheresis. Don't worry, I'll ask what that means. I'll even ask if I'm saying this right. Dr. Hazi is founder of the Food Initiative. It's a nonprofit organization that helps youths make better, healthier choices for their bodies and their communities. He also serves as an advisor and a board member to numerous ventures in the medical, biotech, and neuroscience fields that have creating health as a common goal. One of those is he's the chief scientific officer for Zymogen. You can follow Dr. Hazi at David Hazi, H-A-A-S-E-M-D, on all the social outlets. Dr. David Hazi coming up on the Finding Center podcast. Hope you enjoy. Joining us now on the Finding Center podcast is Dr. David Hasse. Dr. Hasse, thank you for the time. How are you? Hey, Nick. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. God, what a really special treat. So as we were kind of working to find a time to get you to join us, you saw that I had David Epstein, author of Range, one of my favorite books, and he was on our first season, and you were really excited about that. What is it about his work that resonates so much with you? Oh, yeah. I mean... Well, David, you know, Epstein has just done such a great job because of drawing attention to, you know, really excellence of the future. And the excellence of the future is not in silos, but it's in the connection of, of what used to be siloed information, right? You know, you, you had your super head top knowledgeist of this and you, you had yes. your ultra specialist of that. And, and that was always, oh, I saw the subspecialist. And, you know, I come out of uh, uh, Vanderbilt and Mayo Clinic and my background. And so I've been around a lot of amazing medical subspecialists. And I mean, I got to tell you, astoundingly smart and great folks. But the, the problem that any, it, you know, our greatest strength always becomes our greatest weakness. Yes. That's just, a, a, that's just a, a way the natural world works. And when you spend so much of your time in one area and one silo, you start losing the connection to the rest of the world. And, and in generalists, you know, the, the family doctors, the internal medicine doctors, the people who have been in the trenches and see everything from, you know, and broad swaths, it's astounding the level of insight that those individuals develop over the course of time. Now, I'm biased because I am one of those people. <laughs> so I like his message because it suits my bias, right? Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> So I, I, I think I always try to strive. My, my practice has really become that of being a super generalist and uh, taking it. really, you know, deep dive information and trying to put it together for an individual person. So reading your bio and everything and kind of looking into your story, understand that you grew up on a farm in South Dakota and you talked about Vanderbilt and you talked about training at the Mayo Clinic and double board certified how did all of that and kind of your upbringing shape what you're doing now for patients? Well, you know, there's, there's something about sitting in a 4420 John Deere going up and down a half mile uh, uh, cornfield, you know, for hours and hours on ends that makes one determined you're never going to be bored again in your life, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> so I had many hours of committing to myself that my brain would never have a lack of something interesting to think about. So, oh, that's great. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up in medicine because I, you know, they really thought that's the place I could be the least bored. And I, <laughs> and I was right. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, because it never really ends. So we hear the terms as civilians, functional and integrative medicine. And I think a lot of us just go, wow, that's, that's really awesome. We kind of gloss over, don't even really know what it means. How do you describe the work you're doing now? Yeah, I, I think it is. It's a good reason you gloss over. And, and I tell people, you know, I actually even call what I do personalized systems medicine. I, and that really causes a gloss. Uh, <laughs> and so I, like but that though. I, I think that, you know, what all of these traditions, let me go back. You know, I had a, an amazing dean of uh, the medical school, uh, Dr. Dean German, uh, when I was at Vanderbilt. She actually went on to start one of the newest medical schools in the United States, University of Central Florida. She is a powerhouse, an absolute change driver. You should have Dr. German on if you can get her. Cool. Yeah, because she's just brilliant in all kinds of ways. But when I was a medical student, she stood in front of the board and she said, all right, everyone. Um, and she wrote on the good doctor. And she said, okay, what is the good doctor? And she had us all start, you know, throwing out things. Okay, intelligent, kind, hardworking, compassionate, blah, blah, blah. And she filled the blackboard with this list of words where all of us are crushed in our souls going like, oh, my God, we're never going to be a good doctor. <laughs> and at the end, she said, well, each of you are going to have to find your own definition of what the good doctor is for you. And, and that has actually been, it sounds kind of corny on my first day of medical school, like, but it was an amazing transformation for me. And that rung with me. And uh, so after that, uh, even because I'm a very curious guy and I'm just really never accept the answer I have as being the right or complete answer, I kind of all, I'm always my own worst cynic. And uh, I kept asking questions. And the main question that Come up, came upon was like, why are we spending all of our time naming and blaming diseases, right? We're giving them ICD-10 codes, which are billing or which are diagnostic codes so that gotcha. we can give them CPT codes, which are billing codes so that the economic healthcare machine can keep moving forward. And, and so the diagnosis is central to the economic side as well as the, and then that becomes part of the Oh, the intellectual side of medicine. And, and what happens is the more you use language of a particular type, the more that starts to become the foundation of how your brain is shaped. You start thinking as diagnoses as real things. But, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in dementia, for instance, and, and no dementia person is the same, right? The very common, at the very end stage, when they're in, in bed and unable to do anything for themselves and that looks very much similar. But as they approach that process, uh, a patient with dementia is not a patient with dementia is not a patient with dementia. Each person is unique. And so I had this big realization. It's like, wow, we're, diagnosis is a really important part of this process, but it's limiting if we stop there. What we should do when a diagnosis happens is we should say, oh, that's great. Now, why is that diagnosis here? Why in this person is that diagnosis here? So the shift came for me is to start looking at not just diagnosis, but how do we create health? How do we create health? And I think a lot of these 
uh, groups that have emerged, uh, Holistic Medicine Association, the Institute for Functional Medicine, for which I'm a faculty member for and have trained thousands of doctors. They're doing really great work. Or the, the integrative medicine or anti-aging or age management medicine. I think they're, uh, what ties most of these groups together and why they don't seem to fit in conventional medicine is because the goal is somewhat different. It's not just to treat disease, but it's how do we create health? Does, does that make sense? Oh, it totally makes sense. And it, it really seems like the curiosity is digging to, okay, why the diagnosis? So it's actually going much deeper than just that surface and saying, okay, you have dementia, you have Parkinson's, you have Alzheimer's, you have whatever it may be. Why is that there? Why is that right, the case? Right. And it goes back to it goes back to Epstein because what he was talking about is that we have to go across specialties. We have to start looking at the whole of reality in a better way. And that's what a generalist does. A generalist has a good gestalt for things because they have a lot of pieces of information from different areas of specialty to put together. Maybe not the incredible depth, but you, you now we are all carrying around the world's knowledge in our hand, the palm of our hand. You know, depth is available to all of us. The big problem is knowing where to freaking dig. <laughs> and, and, and that's and that's the job of the ultra generalist, right? And uh, uh, so anyway, that I think that's where how do we create health and how do we figure out what's the unique way and the unique challenges for an individual person? Um, you know, certainly enough to fill a very curious mind for a long time. So I was introduced to you by a mutual friend, sent me the TED talk you did in Nashville. I thought it was awesome. And it was on creating hope for dementia through systems and plasma regeneration. And, and in that talk, you told the story about your friend, Dan, you were the best friend at his wedding. And he called you after you'd been practicing for like 20 years. And he said, Dave, I'm losing my memory. What, what age was he where he was diagnosed with early stages of neurocognitive condition, mild cognitive impairment? When, how early was that in his life? 48. Wow. Yeah, 48. And how did he come about that? You know, it's very interesting. Sorry, I didn't get to go into really my TED Talk because, you know, um, the goal of the TED Talk is really to help people think differently. That's right. You know, because... And it did, it, yeah. And, I liked and, how you, you talked about the systems of the entire uh -huh, body and how uh -huh. fully integrated everything is. I loved it. Right, right. And, and sometimes, you know... Um, Anytime somebody gives a talk like that, they say, oh, here, give the three main points. Here's three simple steps to us, <laughs> to a skinny waist or, you know, that's what bloggers do, right? That's how you get clickbait, right? That's you know, it, it's, it's like, oh, make everything, you know, be, have a high level of certainty that everything's simple. But, you know, any, in any area where we have a high degree of knowledge, we recognize the world isn't simple, Right. I mean, you were a center, you're, you're an NFL center, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So exactly. is, is being a center simple? No, not at all. No. No, it's, it's wildly complex. No, the yeah, whole wildly right? complex. Come up, diagnose the defense, talk to five guys, six, maybe seven, and figure right? out who's going to be in charge of who. And then the defense is moving around and we got to reset. We got to make new calls, all of that. Yeah, it's, it's very complex. Yeah, right. And because you know it well. 
right? Yes. You have a depth of knowledge there. Yes. I was, I was, I, yeah, when people are watching from the crowd, they're like, oh, look at those fat guys bumping into each other. That must be really easy. All you have to do <laughs> is be fat and strong and you can stand there. I was, I, you was in, in thinking about this, um, I'll get back to your question, but in thinking about this talk today, I was going like, wow, being a center is a lot like being a doctor because you know nobody ever pays attention to when you get the ball in the right place. But if you get the ball in the wrong place oh. one time, oh, geez. you know, oh my gosh, how many replays happen from that one event, right? Oh, and so and many. like, you know, you know, baseball players, they get the man, they bat 400. They're doing awesome. Legendary. Right? <laughs> if a center, you know, hikes at a 400 rate, you know, accuracy. Oh, you're uh, out of a job. You're out of a job at you know, exactly the second right. in two downs, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you miss a blitz pickup and, and you got a quarterback who's talking about, you. I broke three ribs on that one. <laughs> and that's a lot like being a physician. Right? Sometimes, that's the way it feels sometimes. Like, okay, you got to bat a thousand. You got to yeah, be right. Uh, yeah, you give you up. One, right. You give up one sack and you had a terrible game. Right, exactly. Even though everything else went just right. Right. So anyway, yeah. I, I was having some empathy for you as I was thinking oh, about you. all that. <laughs> yes, the plight of the linemen. <laughs> so the, the thing is, when we're an expert in a field, we have uh, we immediately create a bias around things, right? Our knowledge, create that excellence actually creates a brain shape where we can't see beyond our expertise as well. We'll actually delete information uh, that comes in because our brain doesn't even have the boxes to put it inside of. So when I was doing this TED Talk, I wanted to challenge people to get outside the box of their brain, whatever their brain shape was, yeah. to be more curious about what happened. So I didn't really go into what Dan actually had or did. But what, you know, so because I want people to think. But what occurred with Dan is actually even more interesting so Dan was a nurse practitioner and uh, one, oh my gosh, what a caring, super kind, lovely man. Oh my gosh. So blessed to have him as a friend. And, um, and he uh, <clears throat> went to Alaska to do some locum tenens work on, on a, a reservation and they put him up in this nice little cabin and Dan didn't really care because all he was there to work and fish. That's all he wanted to do. Perfect. But, but they didn't tell him don't drink the water. And the water was just lead pipes. And these pipes sat, the water would sit in these lead pipes for months on end. And Dan didn't think anything. He just went and drank the water. And the first year he went up, he came back and he was a little grouchy and irritable. He couldn't sleep well and all kinds of weird things. But he put it off on job stress and marriage stuff and finances. And, you know, we always find excuses especially with people with head injuries, head injuries, we always make excuses about why this is going on, right? Yes. We blame it on ourselves. We put it on external circumstances. We never really think it's our own brain that is the primary cause, right? Yes. So, and then, um, but, and then he went back that, you know, he kind of recovered and he went back the next summer and that's when it all hit the fan. And I mean, even while he was up there, his mental status just declined and declined. And he came home and he was kind of a different person than when he had left. Uh, they did blood work and his lead level was, you know, a good hundred times the upper limit of normal. It was, it was very high by conventional standards. This is nothing. There's no, there's no like, oh, this is some hair analysis and they had some crazy. <laughs> no, he had really bad lead toxicity. And, and they tested the water and sure enough, the lead was high in the water, very high. Um, and he kind of got posed in the whole workman's comp thing. You know, it's, it's amazing how little justice there is sometimes in the world. Right. But one of the main things we did with him was IV chelation. 
you know, which is the, which is the FDA uh, standard for how you get rid of heavy metals. And um, he also did neurofeedback, uh, a bunch of nutritional therapy. He changed his diet, exercised. You know, we really, I helped to teach him why his lifestyle makes a big difference in his brain. And he really had a complete recovery. He went back completely to his old self. And then as, you know, he pulled off of many of those therapies and it really wasn't probably, he thought, well, these aren't that important. And, um, and sure enough, the, the regression started again. Uh, we reinstituted therapies, and again, there was some improvement, but not like we wanted to have. So unfortunately, he's not, he's not better anymore. He's off of work. He is, he had, and his diagnosis is now more clear that he has frontotemporal dementia, um, which is a unique form that does hit young people. But he's, uh, you know, Glory B is uh, not progressing. So I mean, it's, it's astounding. Uh, his, his consulting neurologists are very pleased with just how um, stable this has all been. They've been so, able to level it out. And you you mentioned that he pulled himself off a of treatment. Did he get back on? Does he now have a maintenance type program that he's on? What's he doing? He does. He does. And, he, and he's, it's astounding how much of a difference staying in uh, a relative ketotic state helps him. Um, okay, good. So, ketosis helps him. And I, I think it's kind of wrong. Mo, mo, ketosis is a big fad. And I think everybody being in ketosis all the time is not a good idea. Right. You know, it's variation is really the, is really a healthy state for, for, for treating his pathology. That makes a big difference. And if he stays off of wheat, stays off of gluten, stays off of dairy, um, those make a big difference in his life. And of course, no alcohol. There's a few other, I, 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 uh, uh, prescribed him oxytocin. So oxytocin is kind of the love chemical, right? I mean, yeah. oxytocin gets released when uh, uh, um, the nipples are stimulated and milk is released by a woman and it creates this massive emotional bonding experience. It's also involved in orgasm, uh, but it, it helps with prefrontal social awareness neurology. And, and so um, we were able to take down his a-hole quality his a-hole quotient substantially uh, by uh, intranasal oxytocin. And, and it's nice now that the, we're having some larger controlled trials that support the basic science of that. But yeah, I mean, it's, he's a remarkable guy and, yes. and I love him, love him to death. And uh, you know, we need to, we individuals who have an injured brain, be it from a dementing process, a head injury, or even life trauma. I mean, the amount of grace and kindness that we we all need to recognize there, but for the grace of God, go I. And 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 empathy and compassion is appropriate. I think this is why curiosity is so important when you're working with the brain, or just when you're being a human. Yes. <laughs> if you're interacting, more people are curious. Yeah. yeah, if you're interacting with another human and they're just, you know, they're off. You think they're an a hole. Well, guess what? They may have an injured brain and a whole lot more people are walking around with head injury than we give credit to. Um, and we just kind of, we put it into, oh, that's just who that person is. And uh, because that's what justifies it in our own mind, because we all have to make sense of the world. And when yes. something doesn't fit, we have to make a rule up. We have to externalize it. You know, we got to, we have to make sense of things and it's, far easier blaming somebody's personality or morality rather than looking beyond that and seeing a brain that is hurting. 
Hey gang, get you back to the podcast in just a moment. With home security, there's two ways you can go about protecting your home. You can wait weeks for a technician to do the messy install that cost a fortune, or you can get Simply Safe, the two-time winner of CNET Editor's Choice Awards. Simply Safe and blankets your whole home and safety. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching. Entry, motion, glass break sensors guard the inside. You can set up the system all by yourself. It only takes 30 minutes. You'd have an army of highly trained security experts ready to dispatch police at a moment's notice 24 7. it costs 50 cents a day there's no contracts go to simplysafe.com team today and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial you've got nothing to lose go now and be sure you go to simplysafe.com team that's simplysafe.com team now back to the podcast what is dementia and I guess, how does it differ from Alzheimer's or other neurodegenerative diseases? Sure. That's a great question. It's a great question. It's not one that many people ask, right? In many ways. Yeah. So you, but just de- kinda, you hear it and it's like, okay, dementia. Yeah, I, I know it's not good. Just go back, you know, the word dementia literally means unbraining, right? So dementia and, and dement being in a, having a dementing process is a neurodegenerative process. Um, dementia typically clin- in clinical terms means that, that person can't care for themselves and the, the brain injury has been so severe and profound that, you know, they have, they are no longer in a, uh, a functional state. Um, but Alzheimer's disease is one type of dementia. Uh, sometimes we'll use the term dementia when we don't have a good label to put on this kind degenerative process. Umbrella. Yeah, yeah, and I like it because it's I like it because it's an umbrella term, and because it gives us the opportunity to continue curiosity. Like, what? Actually, I don't think people have Alzheimer's disease. I think they are Alzheimering. We okay. should look at it more as a verb than a noun. Okay. Yeah. You know, what is this process of Alzheimering that's going on? What is this process of dementing going on? And if you look at our, you know, I think reality is best described as a complex system of systems. You know, we look around at the natural world. There's all these amazing systems, like a system we call a tree, but that tree exists within a forest and that forest exists within a continent. You know, there's, there's systems on systems on systems interacting and that's the way it is in the body. And, um, and that's how, uh, if we're curious about uh, dementia is a kind of final common degenerative point where you have multi-system dysfunction. You're literally having collapse of the capacity to, um, uh, you're having collapse of the capacity to uh, deal with or compensate for whatever problem is present. And, uh, and, and that can be different for every person. The number of individual factors that can promote a dementing process, we have over a thousand that are identified. Some of them you can do something about, some of them you can't. But to say, oh, you have uh, Alzheimer's disease, which would probably be better, you know, even in, in so a young person that develops Alzheimer's type dementia, there's some very specific genetic mutations, PSEN1, PSEN2, that these are individuals in their 50s will come down with a rapidly progressive, horrible Alzheimer's type, you know, loss of short-term memory and all the typical progression. But what we see in older individuals, uh, we actually, it's called LOAD, late onset Alzheimer's disease. And I like that acronym, LOAD. 
because it actually tells a story. It is what is the total load that has brought this condition forward. Oh, yeah. And then, and then how can we be curious and do laboratory testing, genetic testing, quantitative EEG, volumetric MRI, neurocognitive testing? How can we put that together and then make a multifactorial treatment plan um, and, uh, and track those results, see what, what can be done? Um, yeah. Is that what you do when somebody walks into the clinic in Nashville is you take all these tests and you kind of put them all together and stack them up and... Where do you begin with people if they come yeah, in? Yeah. They they come in having neurocognitive issues. Where do you even start? Okay, I think you know. Where do you start? Um, you start by listening. You know, you start actually by listening. What you know? What is the story? Because humans are amazingly complex and super intelligent, and families are caring. And and if you listen, many times a tremendous amount of story will be told to you. What's very important is the process of deminting. When did you first see something not be as it should? When was there a change? What, first of all, what was your maximum function? And you start asking these questions of family and even of patients early in the process, they, and you really ask the questions. You're going to realize they started to have a drift in their brain function at age 30 at age 40. You know, athletes, right? We see it all the time. They're just not as sharp after they've been in competition for a while and they should be at the peak. But again, head injury is this, again, an un, not a frequently recognized component of neurologic impairment. So we start with a history and then um, we do a we actually, we always try to get old records. I think that's a gold mine that unfortunately doesn't get drilled as often as it should because the, the, the healthcare uh, trajectory of those individuals contains tremendous gold for knowing where are we going? The biggest, one of the biggest questions I have is, A, A what's the problem? But also, how fast is this going downhill? Because a lot of people won't intervene in t until things are way too far gone, right? You yes. Yeah, right, That's because... It. Before it's beyond repair. Yeah, because, you know, you can't raise the dead, okay? You know, <laughs> you can't. So neurons die, sayonara. You're, you're, you're working on what you have. How do you make what you have left work better, Right. And so yeah. when you start seeing a drift in cognitive performance, that's when the pedal should be hitting the metal. But that's usually when Cleopatra comes in. Right. You know what Cleopatra is. Right. She's she's the queen of denial. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Yes. That's Cleopatra. And so you get you get denial coming in when problems aren't too bad yet. But that's actually when you would want to engage. And uh, does that make sense? Yeah, so hundred percent. I'm a huge advocate and I always tell people when I can, it's like, Hey, you got to go get your numbers, get your baseline, track mm -hmm, yourself, mm -hmm. monitor yourself where you're at. If you were to tell people, Hey, at what age should you begin to track blood levels, brain function, all of that? And then <laughs> it, when do you do something about it? Yeah. Oh my God. I think, I think every I guess adult what, start what numbers should they get even? Oh my gosh. Oh, the, the list is so long of what would be ideal. And that's where history helps you, right? So by listening, family history, what we're always trying to do is to match the, the economic burdens of evaluation with the, um, uh, 
you're trying to match the economic burdens of evaluation with, you know, what is the most reasonable evaluation to do? Right. My own practice, we go is we go super deep. We're we're going to do metabolomics, proteomic, transcriptomics. We're going to do quantitative EEG, volumetric MRI, and I'm working on a software package to help us delineate how can we choose better? How can we, and we're getting so many new screening tools to say, oh, you look like you're on the pathway to advanced aging. It looks like you're on the pathway to increased neurodegeneration. It looks like you're on the pathway. And um, then it gives you such a better opportunity to know, yeah, let's, let's really spend our time on this person. Uh, let's 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 dig in deeper in this particular domain. So I'm sorry, that's a loosey goosey answer. Oh, that's great. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, because it's yeah, you get your thyroid checked, and you get your B12 checked, and you get your vitamin D checked, and you get you know there's there's this laundry list of basic things everybody should get checked. Um, but now you asked about neurocognitive testing. That doesn't you know no needles need to go in the arm. Uh, you can get a neurocognitive test starting at age 20. I mean, you can get you can get a neurocognitive test. You know, really with really good precision, you know, starting about age eight. Um, I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be an annual event. Uh, just check it out. Put And because the changes that you have in comparison to your previous capacity is actually the most important data that you can have. Um, we utilize a, a platform in our office all the time called CNS Vital Signs. Uh, it's inexpensive. It's reproducible. Uh, we're going to be... Um, and then we're going to make a, a variant uh, uh, neurocognitive test available online soon so people can check those themselves. Just put a line in the sand. Yeah, you know, get your you know, own baseline. Get your own baseline, right? But it's, it's, it's always best to do with your doctor, you know, because you see it in the context. But it's, and again, get your doctor to, get, to start using CNS Vital Signs, okay? I mean, they're, they're a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful company and they do good work, easily done. But, Are we getting- but you, are we getting to the place in medicine and you talked about all these coming in as far as like metabolism and understanding that, are we getting to the place where you can give an individual a prescription and say, Hey, you definitely need to avoid this type of food. This diet may be best for you. You should exercise this time instead of kind of the broad like news that we all take in and we just kind of go to where we like? Is it possible as a doctor to say, here's what you should be doing on a daily and a weekly basis? Yeah. Like a, a prescriptive I, living. I, they're, they're, we're getting closer. Um, you know, I always kind of joke about MTHFR, right? MTHFR is a, a methylation gene that's kind of had a cult build up around it. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, people will talk about their MTHFR status. I was, I was testing for this uh, folate uh, this folate metabolism gene way back in 2003 and you know it's been around for a long time and and it does help you understand like how your body deals with folate but you know the the randomized studies that's been have been done to see how impactful this one single gene is are have been very disappointing and 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 as is with most every single gene study that is done um the good you know we would not be alive if we didn't have redundancy on redundancy on redundancy. Our bodies are massively capable of, ad- of adapting to circumstances. So when, uh, you know, sometimes you have a genetic panel promoted, like, okay, here, get your saliva sample done, and we're going to tell you what to eat and tell you to take these supplements and do all of this. I think that's helpful. But, uh, and then 
that should give you a hypothesis. And then you should run the experiment and say, okay, I'm going to do this. And let me see, how am I functioning? How am I feeling? What's going on with my blood work? Is this actually represent, you know, something that is good for me? Then now that's really important data. So I, every time we get data in, we should be looking at it as a hypothesis that we uh, have the duty to run the experiment and test. But what, where we're going is that instead of looking at single gene, and I'm going to come back to MTHFR, there's a massive network of genes that are involved on MTHFR. And then there are highly uncommon variants that are involved in the whole methylation cycle. And for that one tiny piece of metabolism, we'll start having a better and better understanding on how would that impact. But again, that's a drop in the bucket compared to all of the other uh, metabolomic patterns that exist. Uh, we, we've been doing whole genome analysis in our clinics since 2013, uh, and that has been deeply humbling, um, so humbling. And I think medicine in general should always put a doctor in a state of humility because how little we really know compared to how much there is to know is just amazing. Uh, but when you start to get a look at these really uh, beautiful, complex families of genes, and then how those families of genes start to interact. And that's getting unwoven, or that's getting uh, understood to a greater degree now. I think we'll have a better idea. But healthy living is generally healthy living, right? Eat whole food, move, love, sleep, <laughs> drink water. You know, there's some pretty good consistent ones you don't need any genetic testing for. <laughs> Great point. How can we identify if we're becoming degenerate beyond kind of standard aging that we all just feel as we get older naturally? Oh, that's, wow. There's some really interesting tests that are coming along. So Steve Horvath is a, um, a researcher from UCLA, and he has been doing a lot of work with DNA methylation patterns. Um, we're, um, I've been uh, working on a platform to integrate that information plus uh, protein sequencing um, and plus uh, telomere measurements in kind of understanding what someone's real age is. You know, you, you have your, you have your, uh, your chronologic, age, yep. chronologic age, but you know, what is, what it, what's the age of, you know, how actual old are your organs? How actually old is, or is your body? Um, and uh, uh, that's really exciting. Uh, that's, that should be coming in a few months. Uh, but, but right now, um, uh, any of the work of Dr. Horvath, you know, the, the tests that he's created have good validity in showing how old someone is. And, and we had, uh, mentioned, uh, earlier in our talk about peptides and, uh, their growth hormone and everything like that. There's so many interesting ways. Once one takes a viewpoint of how do you create health, you need to have tools to track that. Uh, and, and so um, you, if for every system that you have, there's a tool for tracking it. So if you want to check the health of your brain, one of the tools you can do is a neurocognitive test. Or you can do a quantitative EEG where you put a cap on your head and measure the electrical patterns. Well, guess what? If you have... If you just have normal aging, you don't see a lot of changes on that quantitative EEG. But if you have a dementing process, you have a vascular injury, you have a buildup of abnormal amounts of fluid in the inside of the brain, uh, yeah, you're going to start seeing changes on that EEG, the electrical health of the brain. Um, what if you want to 
do you want to understand the aging process as it involves um, the body? Man, you know, waist circumference is a pretty good one to start with. <laughs> and, then, and then you can go on to grip strength and there's all types of performance measures. Um, and, and I think that it's probably more important instead of asking how old are these tissues is just what is the level of performance of this human? And so instead of thinking about are you aging because of disease or are you aging because of years, uh, both of those really hit rubber hits the road on how well are you performing. And uh, as we, it relates should, to how you performed previously. Or just how you how how well you could perform. I think it's actually a shame that people think, oh, the best is always behind me. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. We, you know, that's a cognitive bias that our culture kind of teaches us. We get used to seeing people degenerate, but I have all kinds of folks that I've had the witness to see that are healthier decades later uh, than they had been previously. Um, you know, the body is designed to heal. I mean, that's what's amazing. This miraculous intelligence which made the body is what heals the body. You know, it's just, it knows how to compensate. Oh, hey, here's a question. Here's a good question. So what is aging? What, how can you actually define is, aging? Yeah, what is aging? Okay. I and mean, it's a good question to ask people because very few, this is my definition of aging is you, when you have more degeneration than regeneration I like this, in yes. any day, right? You know, you, you're, you're either, you're aging that day or you're, or you're unaging. You're net you know? losing. Net, your, your net, net, net positive, net loss, you're, yep. you're losing. Yeah, exactly. You have, you have lost organ reserve. You have lost, you know, tissues have accumulated damage. That's really what aging is. And so the goal of how do you unage is you want to, well, cer certainly uh, slow damage and then you want to stop damage and then you want to actually increase repair. And that's really the process of kind of unaging. And when you start to ask your question, you know, the body is, some of us, some parts of us are designed to unage if we only allow it to happen. Which parts? Well, I mean, so what does exercise do? So, so think, think of your muscles, right? Yep. If, if you are still and quiet and you sit in a desk all day, uh, your muscles are going to start to atrophy and go down. Um, but if you give them stimulation, even from outside influence, you're going to have them grow. Likewise, bones. Uh, bones will start to create increased density as you put a workload on those bones. But it's not just the exercise, and it's not just the increased workload to the bones. It is the biochemistry. You know, Do you have the cellular physiology to enable that growth to happen? So do you, you see it, you can't just exercise your way out of osteoporosis. You know, your exercise is a necessary component for you being well and staying well, but you need cellular signals that can help. And uh, yeah, the, the bone regeneration actually goes back to parabiosis is one of the interesting parts. So, And kind of creating that environment for it too. So increase the exercise, increase the load, and then also have like a nice healthy environment that's helping cultivate that bone regeneration or the muscle growth or I guess whatever it may be. And again, you know, the fundamentals are almost always the same for us, but if, but once you're getting the fundamentals handled, you know, what are the, you know, what are the unique factors that are holding you back? Why is an individual developing disease or accelerated degeneration in an organ system? That's a big question.
That's what you're trying to identify when somebody comes in, if they have their fundamentals down. Yes, that's exactly correct. And I think this is, mm -hmm. give me some fundamentals that, that people need to be really concerned with. Oh yeah. Well, like let's check all these boxes and then if we still have issues, then we can take a deeper dive. You know, sleep is a profoundly important uh, exercise for the brain. Um, you know, we, you know, we have all kinds of blue light sources around us and that blue light wakes us up and it has a, a quantity of, of telling our brain that it's day. Um, and that's fine uh, until it's not day. When it starts to become dusk, all these uh, screens, computer screens, phones are screaming at our brain, still telling it, it's telling us it's day. And we have not had enough time to evolve out of that. <laughs> we have had a lot of time to get used to the shift of colors telling us when it's time to go to bed. Uh, when it's time to start shutting down and we're robbing ourselves of that opportunity. So just using something as simple as um, blue light blocking glasses. I I actually prefer amber glasses um, uh, because, and you want kind of wraparound glasses. uh, And then when it starts to get closer to bedtime, switch those amber glasses out with some red glasses. Um, And you you can try a few cheapies out on Amazon you know, there's all kinds of these available and, um, and run the experiment. It's actually quite profound. You put those red glasses on. Uh, uh, really? Go to, yeah. You just want to stop. You just want to go to bed. They can be actually exhausting for people. And, you know, people try to do work with them and they go like, oh, I just can't get anything done. That's well, you know, duh. That's the point. Go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Go to bed. And, <laughs> when you're tired, sleep. Exactly. Oh. You know, it's, it ain't rocket science. Yeah. So anyway, um, and then you can, but why is, why is sleep so important? Because of these cool little channels. One of the reasons is because of these cool little channels called the glymphatic channels. Have you heard of glymphatics? Yes. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Well, I hadn't heard of glymphatics until just a few years ago because they were just d- discovered. And we thought we kind of knew all the anatomy in the body. I mean, when you, all of a sudden there's a new paper out and said, hey, we've discovered a new anatomical feature in the body. They're going like, oh my, you got to be kidding me. But sure enough, there are these little channels that exist inside the brain that are closed up during the day. And it's like two cells are together and kissing. But when we go to sleep, they pucker and a channel is formed. And now this forms a a drainage uh, pattern, a drainage system for the brain. And so we get rid of the junk and the the damaged molecules and the... um, and, you know, the, the toxins that need to come out. And one of those toxins is like beta amyloid. You know, so if you don't have the capacity to sleep well, boy, that's going to accelerate um, the buildup of beta amyloid, which can be toxic in itself. Now, not, not singularly causative of Alzheimer's disease. Let me be very clear in my opinion there. But, but it's absolutely a contributing feed-forward factor. So, you know, that's a good example of sleep. But, yes, yeah. So give, give me another fundamental. So you got sleep at the top of the list, yeah, I which I, I completely agree with. Everybody I talk to is coming all back to sleep and how much restoration can happen if we yeah. get proper sleep, if we get good sleep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and also a rainbow of color in your food. Uh, and, you know, and that doesn't, Skittles doesn't count. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. You know, you want a rainbow of colors, but one of the colors is brown. And, and the brown is mushrooms. 
So adding, making sure that you have uh, mushrooms in your diet, just uh, three servings of mushrooms a week was shown to decrease the incidence of Alzheimer's disease. I mean, that's pretty profound. Now, there's a, some really cool biology behind this. You know, when I was talking about Alzheimer's disease and load or, you know, um, late onset Alzheimer's disease, I think there's a better name for this late onset Alzheimer's disease, and that would be age-related immunodementia. I think that we're really looking at a, the tipping point that causes dementia to feed forward is the failure of the immune system the failure of the thymus, the thymus gland shrinks. We put out fewer naive T cells and these T cells are the cells that look after our body holding back infections that are chronic. All, all of us have a bunch of chronic infections that we're just holding at bay. Pretty, pretty astounding really. But when the immune system ages, you know, has more degeneration than regeneration, um, it's unable to do that. And now the body has to pull out uh, factors that are more toxic to hold back the infection. And guess what? Amyloid beta is a really good antibiotic. So the body makes antibiotics to hold back infections because of primary immune dysfunction. And there's a whole bunch of really cool science. Okay. So I'm sorry if I'm geeking out here. A no, bit, I love it. The, uh, because we need to, you know, everybody, when people start asking, do you, asking me for details. I always have to ask, do you really want to know? <laughs> <How many laughs> Give me a whiteboard. <laughs> Give me a whiteboard quickly. So, um, but that can be done, but let's, let's talk about that. So what are other ways your brain can hold back infections? Well, it's through this really cool uh, molecule called LL37 or catholicidin. This is uh, in an a innate protein that defends the brain from infection. And um, we can turn this defensin or this, this, um, this protein that defends us on with our nutrition. So I had mentioned color to begin with. Well, one of the compounds that turns on catholicidin, this antibiotic in the brain that we make ourselves, is curcumin. So the, the compound that comes off of turmeric, you know, great in you know, high quality nutritional supplements can make a big difference in this domain and have been shown to increase the expression pattern of LL37. Also, uh, resveratrol, which is a, often an extract of, of um, grape skins or grape seeds, um, Japanese knotweed. There's a bunch of places you can get resveratrol from. And that also turns on this LL37. And, and then vitamin A. So vitamin A, where do we get vitamin A? Well, we get it from beta carotene, which is present in all kinds of fruits and vegetables. Um, and That's the color and then, that you're talking about. Exactly. Can and I then, go back to the resveratrol if you don't mind? Uh, no, one second. I'm going to finish okay, this go. list yes. here because it's important, it's important to recognize that there's a whole bunch of compounds that are working to make certain that this LL37 can continue its immune supportive work. Why? Because it's so important. This is part of our biologic redundancy. So that it, this is so super critical that we have all kinds of redundancy to make sure this thing works. So you have curcumin, resveratrol, vitamin A, vitamin D. So sunlight exposure. Think of these poor folks in nursing homes you know, they're basic. When have you ever seen one with a tan? Never. No. How, how often do these folks see sun? And, and I actually think that that 
is progressing their degeneration. Oh yeah. You know, you know, you see these robustly bronze people, you know, they, they may look like they are, you know, their, their skin looks like the elephant hide, but <laughs> a lot of, a lot of them have good brains, right? Yes. Interesting. And then one last thing is butyrate and butyrate also turns on this LL37. Well, where do we get butyrate from? Well, you can get it from nutritional supplements, but you also make it when you eat fiber and that fiber is changed by good probiotics in the gut and it eats up the fiber and makes a short fatty acid, short chain fatty acid butyrate. So there's a bunch of different ways a person can go at actually making this LL37 through good nutritional support. So, okay. So back to resveratrol. Yes. I got, I got two questions. One is the resveratrol and then the other one would be on the vitamin D and I guess we'll start with vitamin D is how do people in cold weather climates make sure that they're getting enough sun on their back? Is, oh, is it's a hard. Bed, is a tanning bed acceptable? It's really hard. Yeah, I think a tanning bed is acceptable. But again, you know, the, my father is hilarious. I mean, he was a South Dakota farmer. He, his arms those arms were almost always black. I mean, hit me on, yeah. and I'm a, I'm a white boy. Classic so, farmer's tan. Hey, uh, it's classic farmer's tan, right? You take <laughs> off, you take off that shirt though. And you know, you, you got to put on some sunglasses, man, because that's a glare. <laughs> he had a t-shirt and, when he took his shirt off. Exactly. Yeah. But, but his, his skin was amazing. He, you know, even at over 80 years of age, he has like no precancers on his skin at all. And, and, and it's astounding to me. It makes me wonder. He's just an N of one, but I actually think, you know, he was, he got sun the right way. He was outside every day. He got used to the sun. So his sun exposure got a little bit more each day. He was out there all day, every day. Even in the cold in South Dakota. In the cold. Yeah. He wasn't in a t-shirt, but he quickly would got into a, a short sleeve shirt. And, and then he, he was out there every day. So his skin was used to it. The, what we know really accelerates melanoma and some other things is getting burnt. So, you know, we have this idea that, oh, sun worshiping. Oh, so tanning beds are not about that. But if we can microdose, right, if we can get appropriate dosing, it's not about getting a bronze tan. It's about having enough, just enough over the course of time. I think, and we haven't really studied that very well, right? We just look at the extremes and we vilify sun. Oh, don't get any sun exposure. You'll get a, you know, you'll get skin cancer. Well, you know, you're going to have some other problems. You know, sun exposure, believe it or not, increases nitric oxide and it lowers blood pressure through independent mechanisms of vitamin D. You know, sun exposure has all kinds of, you know, like we mentioned, sleep cycling capacity to it. So um, with everything moderation, I, sometimes I d- describe myself as a radical moderate. So I love it. <laughs> so when you mentioned resveratrol, I immediately thought, okay, our listeners are going to go, oh, doc just gave me the green light to drink some wine and the more the merrier when it comes to resveratrol. What's the stance? Is it kind of everything in moderation? Well, again, you know, when we're looking at single molecules and expecting resveratrol to act like a drug, you know, we're almost always going to be disappointed. And we're going to be disappointed because we're asking the wrong question. Uh, Drugs work because they are literally poisons. I mean, that's why it requires a medical license to prescribe them because, you know, a well-dosed poison can really help somebody, but they are still poisons. They're an anti this blocker that inhibitor there. 
It is, you know, that's how they work. You know, look at the names of these drugs. And, um, but nutrients don't work that way. Nutrients fit into the system. They, they influence, they, they, we sometimes call them adaptogens, um, or they have a hormetic effect. So it's not to control and, and make the body do something. They don't work by decreasing the body's ability to function. So I think one of the challenges with, like with resveratrol um, is when we want to study these things, it's very hard to find a drug-like effect with them. But they have a remarkable effect over the course of time. So should you drink red wine or not? I mean, that's a, that's a very valid question. Um, I think that there are better ways to get your resveratrol. I think actually getting that in a pill is a better way. Um, you know, now enjoy your red wine, um, in, you know, um, infrequently, uh, a little bit of wine may be good for the heart, maybe, but alcohol is a neurodegenerative substance. And, you know, when you're enjoying, when you're enjoying your, your drink, know that you're just not short-term stupid. You're getting long-term <laughs> You're not just getting short-term brain impairment. Uh, there's a contribution there to long-term. And if it's worth it, enjoy, right? I mean, I, I really, listen, part of my practice is helping people to, uh, helping people despite their lifestyles, right? I, yes. I do want people to live fully. This whole idea that you need to die with a gold star because you were super healthy, you know, that doesn't work for me. You know, I, I want people to just live a raucous, awesome life. So uh, the science answer on this is that, yeah, um, less alcohol is better. Uh, resveratrol is good. You know, get, try to get your these really dense phytonutrients, lots of berries, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, get that in a non-alcohol form. That, that'd be a great idea. But, but also, you know, in, maybe it's more healthy for you to sit around and enjoy a wonderful glass of wine with some great friends, with laughter and community and a low stress. That, then in that case, that glass of wine may be the gateway to to true health, uh, both longevity and the enjoyment of life. So it's contextual, it contextual. Is, it's, yes. We're systems of systems. And yeah. when we boil ourselves down to a diagnosis, we, we miss this. And this goes back to being a super generalist, right? If you're a super yeah. generalist, your goal is to see the whole person, the whole system as it exists. And, and then you get a different set of answers if you're trying to help that person be the fullest version of themselves than if you're trying to treat that disease most completely. Yes. Okay. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this as we're starting to wind down here a little bit. You're an internationally recognized authority in the emerging field of, and this is something that I'll have to ask you maybe for a pronunciation guide on it. Regenerative aphiresis, I think is how you pronounce it. What, what does that mean? And did I do that right? Well, no, you didn't. No. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Regenerative apheresis. 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 Good. So apheresis literally means to, you're, you're, well, you're removing blood. Right. And so apheresis is a process that of by how do you and, and, and we actually talk more about plasma exchange. People can kind of understand the term plasma exchange yes. better. But we're trying to be more accurate in the medical term with apheresis. So, yes, I'm trained in apheresis medicine. Uh, but one of the main procedures is something called therapeutic plasma exchange. And 
therapeutic plasma exchange is um, a technique that is used for very severe autoimmune disease. Uh, it can be amazing for multiple sclerosis, neuromyelitis optica, chronic demyelinating uh, neuropathies, you know, the whole host of autoimmune disease. But what's been very interesting is examining this as a treatment strategy for dementia, specifically Alzheimer's disease. I love it. Oh, fantastic. So where can yeah. people learn more about that? Well, uh, you, um, certainly, uh, you know, follow me on social media, David Haas, EMD. Um, uh, that's work on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Uh, it's H A A S E, uh, MD. And, um, and then, uh, we're going to be having a lot more education being created around this cause it's a lot, it's a very new field. Um, it's, 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 it's wonderfully exciting that this, the, the insights that have come off of this, you can actually go back to my TED talk and if you want to see a bit more about where this idea comes from, and it's been a, uh, I'm, I'm quite innovative, but I'm also very careful. I think that, you know, the, the job in healthcare and medicine is first do no harm. And, you know, how do we uh, over-determine safety uh, and make sure that we have excellent informed consent as any anytime somebody is deciding to do something in uh, with their body uh, in conjunction with us. But here's this process. Think of it basically like an oil change for your brain. Remember how I talked about the glymphatics and how they dump yes. this stuff out into yeah. the bloodstream? Well, what happens when it's in the bloodstream? If you don't have a, a, a good immune system, well, you're a good immune system or a cellular uh, garbage truck system, you, that stuff builds up. And, and what was found is that if we did this oil change, basically putting a couple of, a couple of IVs in, blood comes out, uh, the blood is separated into plasma and cells, the old plasma is discarded, those cells are then mixed with a specific replacement fluid, and then that goes back in the body. And, and that was done um, uh, 18 times over 14 months in people with moderate and, and uh, mild Alzheimer's disease. And uh, some remarkable stuff happened. There was a, uh, in, compared to placebo, the individuals with moderate Alzheimer's disease had a 60% decrease in their rate of progression. Now, that's, that's unheard of. We haven't had a successful drug in Alzheimer's disease for a good 17 years. You know, been over 400 negative studies, one after the other after the other. And so we're awaiting the publication of this study, but I've had access to all of the pre-publication um, presentations and, and uh, doing this. And we have people coming to our clinic in Nashville uh, for us assisting them in this. Uh, and it's it, and then we pair that with a systems medicine evaluation. You know, how can we, how can we really make sure that we're not just removing the factors that are our problem, but are there, are there factors that we could replace uh, that would be, that would be additionally helpful for that particular person? So that's the systems medicine uh, and plasma for dementia. That's where that comes from. Do you have last question? Do you have a motto or a mantra that you live by? <laughs> well, um, one that comes to my mind is do what is wise and works. Very simple. It's, it's, you know, it, it's so when pretty you much do what, do what is wise mm -hmm. means it's been proven over time. And, it, it, well, it's and, wise. And it's effective. Right? It's wise. You know, the reason I'm, you know, I don't actually like treating dementia. 
Okay. I don't, you know, I love working with high performance individuals. We have you know, a bunch of patients who are wonderful CEOs and professional athletes and, you know, some really remarkable humans that want to push the real boundaries of, of what is possible. And those are a lot of fun. And, and I love engaging with that. Of course. But I have really felt called to have part of my practice be Alzheimer's because there's nothing I value more than wisdom. And nothing I value more than wisdom. And, and, and the difference between being old and being an elder is retaining your wisdom. And if there's anything that our world needs, it's to preserve wisdom. And as individuals dement, as they lose, you know, we lose that. We don't just lose that person. We lose all of that accumulated wisdom of a lifetime. And that is a non-renewable resource. That is, a, that is a non-renewable reason. When it's gone, it's gone. That human's unique contribution to the world is gone. And, uh, and I think we need to rage against that. I mean, if there's something that can be done, we should do what we can, do it as early as we can, uh, and continue to study this. And we need more funding. Oh, my gosh, we need more funding. Uh, any of your listeners out there that feel compelled to improve the world, um, there are so many opportunities for studying this process in a way that we can get the word out of what is doing, what is wise, and works. Brilliant. I think you gave us all a ton to think about and kind of wrap our heads around some of the concepts. I'll listen back to this podcast multiple times. Dr. David Hasey, thank you. That was fantastic. Oh, thank you very much for having me here, Nick. It yes. was a real honor. Thank Great, you. Greatly appreciate you. <laughs> okay. All right. All the best. All the best. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Believe Network. 